morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Monday, May the 9th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. At least 50 people were killed in a militia attack at a gold mine in Ituri in the northeastern Democratic Republic of Congo. A total of 52 people were killed in an attack attributed to militiamen of the cooperative for the development of Congo, Kodeko, in the territory of Jugu in Ituri province this Sunday. That is reporter Jaffa Alcatante in Goma. And global food commodity prices decreased in April after a large jump the previous month. It's an, an almost grotesque situation that we see at the moment in, in Ukraine. There are nearly 25 million tons of grain that could be exported, but they cannot leave the country simply because of the lack of infrastructure and the, and the blockade of the ports. That is FAO's deputy director in the markets and trade division, Joseph Schmidhaber. A health tech entrepreneur in Guinea tells me that public health care policy is frustrating innovation in the health sector. We'll have those stories plus sports coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, at least 50 people were killed in a militia attack early on Sunday at a gold mine in Ituri in the northeastern Democratic Republic of Congo. That is according to local sources in the area. The attack on the Camp Blanquette mine was reportedly carried out by the Kodeko, an armed militia that has been previously blamed for violent attacks in the area, including a February attack on an IDP camp in which over 60 people were killed. For more, I'm joined by reporter Jaffa Alcatante in Goma in the eastern DRC. A total of 52 people were killed in an attack attributed to militiamen of the cooperative for the development of Congo, Kodeko, in the territory of Jugu in Ituri province this Sunday. The information is jointly confirmed by the mayor of Mungwaru and the administrator of Jugu territory. And what is the government of the DRC saying about this attack? For the moment, the DRC government has not yet communicated on this tragedy and the Kodeko militia has not claimed the responsibilities of this attack. This incident comes as we are making a year of the establishment of a state of siege, the results of which are decried by everyone, said Jean Bosco Lalo, the former president of Ituri Civil Society Organization. That was reporter Jaffa Alcatante. He joined me from Goma in Eastern DRC. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization says global food prices stabilized last month at a very high level, but were slightly lower than in March, which saw the highest ever jump in food prices. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. FAO officials see little prospect of a significant decrease in the price of food as long as the Russian-Ukrainian war goes on. Both countries combined account for nearly a third of the world's wheat and barley exports and up to 80% of sunflower seed oil shipments. The FAO's deputy director in the Markets and Trade Division, Joseph Schmidhuber, says disruption in the export of those and other food commodities from Ukraine is taking a heavy toll on global food security. He says poor countries are suffering most because they're being priced out of the market. 
it's an, an almost grotesque situation that we see at the moment in, in Ukraine. There are nearly 25 million tons of grain that could be exported, but they cannot leave the country simply because of the lack of infrastructure and the, uh, and the blockade of the ports. At the same time, if there is no wheat corridor opening up for, for exports from Ukraine. Ukraine's summer crop of wheat, barley and corn will be harvested in July and August. Despite the war, Schmidhuber says harvest conditions are not dire. He says about 14 million tons of grain should be available for export. However, he notes there is not enough storage capacity in Ukraine. He adds there is a great deal of uncertainty about what will happen over the next couple of months as the conflict grinds on. What we also seen, and, and that is, of course, only anecdotal evidence that grain is being, uh, whatever the best euphemism for stealing is, is being stolen, let's let's put it by Russia, and is, is being transported on trucks into Russia. Same goes for agricultural implements, tractors, etc., etc. And all that, all that could have a bearing on agricultural output going forward. The FAO official says the situation in Ukraine indicates that the current problem is not one of availability, but one of access. He says there is enough grain to go around and feed the world. The problem, he says, is the food is not moving to the places where it is needed. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. The East African Community Ministers approved the common external tariff of 35% on imported goods outside the East African community. The council say that the move will promote and develop regionally manufactured products. Moses Javierimana has this story. 35% is now the tariff imposed on imported goods outside the East African community after being approved by the East African Community Ministers last Friday in Mombasa. The East African Community Secretary General Peter Matuki said that the new law will open and boost the regionally manufactured products. As you may know, within the framework of the customs union, which is the actually first pillar of ESC regional integration, we have an approach called the common external tariff. And this is a facility or a tool that is supposed to facilitate a movement of goods and development. This uh, particular approach or tool is actually supposed to spur industrialization, but also development within East Africa. The ministers during a retreat on the comprehensive review of the common external tariff held on 5th May 2022 in Mombasa decided that the implementation of the reviewed East African Community Common External Tariff will commence on 1st July this year. The East African Business Council in February called for partner states to adopt a 35% tariff on imported goods outside the East African community. John Bosco Kalisa is the chief executive officer of the Regional Business Council. So EABC commends strongly the decision that were made in Mombasa. This is a commendable. It is one of the tools that will build back better, will build recovery, will strengthen our regional value chain, will promote industrialization, will ensure that our welfare is enhanced by producing and consuming our regional produced products. Among the tariff lines that will be affected with the new common external tariff include dairy and meat products, cereals, cotton and textiles, iron and steel, edible oils and beverages, in addition to leather products, fresh-cut flowers, fruits and nuts, sugar and confectionery, coffee, tea and spices, textiles and garments.
Fred Mukasambi is a lawmaker from the East African Legislative Assembly. They have very little regard to consumers. Now what the leaders in terms of ministers should have done was to measure first of all what is the per capita production levels for East Africans. Number two, where, are the, where is the industrial base? that def definitely manufactures the otherwise goods that are not unwanted because such intervention is geared towards curtailing imports and promotion of that which is produced within a country. But we don't have any production levels that can be talked of in terms of the East African uh, production base. According to the East African ministers, a welfare loss is expected and that it will be cured from generated added employment opportunities from the switch of local production. East African community partner states are expected to identify products which are affected by the current global trade disruptions for consideration during the pre-budget consultations meeting scheduled for this Monday. Moses Aviarimana for Voice of America. Ethiopian officials in the northern Amhara region of Ethiopia say Tigrayan forces have attacked hospitals and sabotaged water supplies in November 2021, acts that could be considered war crimes. For VOA, Henry Wilkins reports from Hayak in Ethiopia. The hospital's emergency room in the town of Haik is in ruins. The roof has been destroyed, the windows blown out. Hospital staff say it was deliberately targeted by forces of the Tigray People's Liberation Front when they attacked the city on November 24, 2021. Sultan Mohammed is a radiologist in Haik Hospital. He says fighters used heavy weapons when attacking health centres. TPL group, I think, is a Saturday targeting from far area, targeting the emergency room, this room, and uh, mainly, mainly the emergency room and the surgical room, targeting from far. He used, I think, mortar or something, heavy weapons. Sultan says TPLF fighters later came to the hospital and ransacked it for medical supplies and equipment, including his X-ray machine and ultrasound machines. He says some of the equipment left behind is now unusable because parts were taken by the TPLF forces. Hike residents say the TPLF fighters also sabotaged this water pumping station, denying them access to water. All over town, people can be seen with plastic containers going to fetch water. Farther north in the town of Weldia, Dr Ayalu Abate says the hospital here was ransacked by TPLF fighters and the staff threatened. He explains that TPLF soldiers came to the hospital to threaten medical personnel. We will kill you if we catch any one of you providing medical services for the defence forces, he said. He adds that healthcare institutions are not supposed to be targeted because they serve the whole community. Deliberately targeting water supplies in hospitals that are not being used for military purposes are considered war crimes under the Geneva Conventions, an international treaty that governs conduct during war. Similar attacks on health centres have taken place in Tigray when the federal government launched what it called a law enforcement operation. A UN report found that in June 2021, out of 224 health centres in Tigray, only 40 were functional. Amnesty International researcher Fasiha Tekle explains the attacks on health centres in Tigray. 
since the start of the conflict, we have documented that uh, there, are, there have been uh, attacks on medical facilities in areas affected by the conflict. In some places, we have seen that uh, hospitals were targeted for indiscriminate uh, attacks and shelling. Uh, that's the case in, for instance, in Shire and uh, uh, other parts of Tigray. Uh, TPLF spokesperson Johannes Abraham rejects the allegations in the Amhara region. Concerning the allegation that uh, Tigrayan forces deliberately destroy a hospital in uh, Haig in uh, the Amhara region, I think these kind of allegations are not new to us. Um, the uh, one thing that the regimes in Ethiopia and Eritrea are good at is that they commit crimes uh, themselves and they frame others as uh, culprits. The Amhara Regional Health Bureau has said that more than 500 health centres in the region have been damaged or destroyed in the conflict. It has not been possible to independently verify that claim. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Hike, Ethiopia. Public health experts say the COVID-19 pandemic exposed some long-standing systemic problems in healthcare systems across the continent. The issues that range from access to quality of healthcare have resulted in widespread disparities and inequities in public health. On a continent with a shortage of resources to build modern healthcare infrastructure, young entrepreneurs are using technology to provide solutions like telemedicine in the healthcare marketplace. And because of the huge business potential in this sector, recent reports show that health tech startups in Africa are attracting hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital funding. However, tech entrepreneurs say that they are often frustrated by the slow pace of African governments in adopting public health care policies that reflect the economic and social value of their innovation. For more on this, I reached Nasa Diallo, the founder of Clinico, a technology-enabled primary health care platform on a mission to bridge the divide between rural and urban access to healthcare in Guinea. I reached Diallo in Guinea's capital, Conakry, and asked him if public policy in his country was catching up with innovation in the health sector. It's very difficult, and, and that's the frustrating part, uh, because policymakers are really lagging behind technology, and you don't know what you don't know. So they see us as disruptors, but also... Um, people who are selling them something that they don't understand. So the, the rational thing for them to do is to be cautious, right, is to slow us down because just they don't understand what we are doing. So I, I think that's, I, I learned that from my public policy days at Facebook being uh, in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. So what, what I'm doing is to break it down into something that they understand, and that can be done through what we call co-regulations, so instead of me coming and telling policymakers what to do, I will just invite policymakers in a room and then uh, invite a few experts in, uh, in, in technology, data regulation, privacy, and so on, so we can together plot something that can be used. So when they are involved, uh, they see it as a learning process and also as something cool. The downside of that, it, it takes time, right? It takes time to because you have to go within their, their rhythm. So... Within bureaucracy. Um, 
Exactly, and, and their bureaucracy. For example, today I spent my whole day at the Ministry of Health uh, trying to feed the egos of uh, some of the, the, the government officials there uh, and figuring out ways. And you cannot secure funding if you do not have a partnership with the Ministry of Health. Has the pandemic changed your approach in how you do things? Absolutely, the pandemic has changed everything. And m- more importantly, with, the, with government officials. Before the pandemic, I... I knew technology could be a solution uh, for for healthcare, for financial uh, um, inclusivity, and and all those kind of things. But um, implementing that or trying that in our countries needed an emergency situation. Unfortunately, in which a lot of people will lose their lives, including those elected officials. I'm going to give you an example. High-level elected officials and government officials in Guinea died through COVID-19 because we do not have the required healthcare. Um, facilities that can um, that can save them in Guinea while everything was shut down. They wanted to get on airplanes or British Airways to go to London or Paris, and uh, the, the sanitation measures said you cannot travel. So now everyone are dealing with the same situation. So I think elected officials understood if we want to continue existing as a society, we need to put these measures into place to prevent pandemic. Because when pandemic hits, it's not north or south. You cannot wait for the U.S. or Germany or any other country to help you like they helped us when we had Ebola. Everyone is saturated with the same problems, COVID-19, and every budget is cut for COVID-19. So everyone is on their own. So we have to start building this. We have to be extremely smart in overhead costs, Jackson. So our clinics is mobile. It's a backpack, a community health worker. Why? Because... We want to reduce the number of people who are getting sick in the first place. If you have few sick people, you do not need to build fancy facilities that can accommodate these people. That's, that's our approach, and that's what we are preaching. That was Nasa Diallo, the founder of Clinic O, a technology-enabled primary healthcare platform on a mission to bridge the divide between rural and urban access to healthcare in Guinea. World Red Cross Day, May 8th, has been observed in Cameroon with hundreds of Red Cross workers in towns and villages across the Central African state asking for greater recognition and protection by their communities. The humanitarian workers say although they have not reported death, Red Cross workers are often victims of battery, Boko Haram terrorism, and separatist hotspots violence. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yawunde. Hundreds of people, including beneficiaries of Red Cross services, humanitarian workers, and government officials, assembled at the Yaoundé headquartered Cameroon Red Cross Society to celebrate the 2022 World Red Cross Day. Among them was Aliu Alim, a Red Cross volunteer who has worked in the northern town of Banyu on Cameroon's border with Nigeria. Alim says in March, he and seven colleagues were taken captive by people they were encouraging to take COVID-19 vaccines in Banyu. He says they were freed after local government officials explained to their captors that Red Cross workers are out to save lives. La Croix Rouge est au service de l'humanité. Donc, à chaque fois... Alim says every Cameroonian should be informed that the Red Cross serves humanity. 
He says besides protecting Red Cross workers, protagonists in conflict zones and civilians should respect and protect the Red Cross emblem, bearing in mind that humanitarian workers are there to rescue people in need and save lives. Alin said many people along Cameroon's border with Nigeria do not know the importance of Red Cross workers and very often refuse to collaborate with them. He said there is a misconception that the Red Cross emblem signifies adherence to a Western occult group trying to recruit Cameroonian followers. The Red Cross says such allegations are unfounded and spread by people who are ignorant of Red Cross activities. The government says Red Cross workers have been of great help saving lives in the Central African state's trouble spots. The government says the Red Cross has provided humanitarian assistance to several thousand of the 750,000 people fleeing the separatist crisis in the country's English-speaking Western regions. Red Cross workers have also assisted about a third of the close to 3 million people displaced by Boko Haram terrorism in Cameroon and its northern neighbors, Chad and Nigeria, the government says. Cecil Akaminfumu, the president of the Cameroon Red Cross Society, says close to 70,000 people volunteer or work as staff for the organization. She says Cameroon needs more humanitarian workers to help people suffering as a result of conflicts generated by environmental challenges and climate change. Moki Edwin Kinzuka for VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. And now it's time for Daybreak Africa Sports. And with that, we go to Abuja with Samson O'Malley. Good morning to you, Samson. Good Monday morning to you too, Jackson. We begin the sports with the CAF Champions League. As the CAF Champions League holders, Al-Hakli thrumped 10-man ES Satif 4-0 at the Al-Salam Stadium in Cairo in the first leg of the CAF Champions League semi-final match played at the Al-Salam Stadium in Cairo. The results saw the Egyptians put one foot into the final of the continental event for the third time in a row thanks to a brace from South African Persitao. Pitsum Mesumane, the South African coach of Al-Hakli, speaks about taking advantage of the red card and ending the victory at home. We played well when Satif still had 10 against, 11 against 11 on the pitch. And we controlled the game even when, when it was 11 against 11. And in football, and if you come here and play us, Al-Hakli, and you get a red card early on a, on a big game like this, of course... We will, we will take the opportunity. In the other semi-finals, wider Casablanca secured a 3-1 comfortable win over Petro de Luanda at the 11 November Stadium. Wider took a two-goal lead into the break and Guy Mbenza got the result beyond doubt with a third in the second half. The return leg will be played on Saturday the 14th of May. In the CAF Confederations Cup, South African Giants Orlando Pirates have put one foot into the final of the CAF Confederations Cup after registering a 2-0 win and the first leg semi-final played against Al-Hali Tripoli in Libya on Sunday night. 
Pirate, who lost out to Osborne's in the final of the 2013 Confederations Cup final, were in control of the match for most points, showing that they were not prepared to sit back away from home. In the other semi-final first leg, an added time goal from 19-year-old John Bacarta snatched a 1-0 home win for TP Mizimbi of the Democratic Republic of Congo over Renaissance Bakani of Morocco. The Confederations Cup is the African equivalent of the European second-tier competition, the Europa League. And now to tennis news. Tunisian Oz Jabour became the first African player to win a WTA 1000 tournament at the weekend, the most prestigious category after the Grand Slam. Jabour ranked 10th in the world, beat 14th-ranked American Jessica Pegula, 7-5, love 6-6-2, two weeks before the French Open. It's amazing, very happy. Uh, I'm glad that I got the win. didn't want to get disappointed again, to be honest with you. But, you know, I've been working very hard, and uh, the match today was, was very difficult, and I'm glad that I pulled the win, and hopefully this will be the opportunity to win many more uh, titles. Her title in Birmingham last year was the first for an Arab woman player on the circuit, and she's the first Arab player, man or woman, to crack the top ten. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Jackson in Washington. And that's it for this edition of Debrek Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. Till next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great week ahead, Africa.